I'm delighted to say we can speak to Professor Meg Russell, who is the director of UCL University College London's Constitution Unit. Thank you for joining us on a Saturday, Meg. What does the, what does the House of Lords do these days? Well, the easiest starting point, I suppose, is to say it does a lot of the same things as the House of Commons. Um, it obviously it doesn't have a prime minister in there, so there's no prime minister's questions. It doesn't have very many senior ministers at all, but it does have junior ministers. And then it, it deals with legislation um, in a similar way to the House of Commons. It holds question times with ministers to hold them to account. It has a set of committees, uh, which are rather different to the Commons committees, um, they're not they're not based on government departments. They're more sort of cross cutting, and it's got a lot of experts in there um, on things like science and technology, law and the constitution, um, who debate matters in a lot of detail and make recommendations in their reports. And then it's a sort of it's a forum for general debates as well. So you know it does what most parliamentary chambers do. Does does it the have crucial... any have any teeth? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm probably going on for too okay. long. Okay, <laughs> um, no, the. Um, it does have teeth, yes. It doesn't have teeth like the House of Commons. I mean, the absolutely key power that the House of Commons has is the one, ultimately, if it was really fed up with the government, to have a vote of no confidence, which results in the government being swept from office. The mm. House of Lords cannot do that at all. Right. The House of Commons, in terms of legislation, its consent is absolutely essential. Nothing could become law. Um, without the House of Commons having approved it. In the Lords, the Lords have to approve things as well, and, and a lot of their time is spent on sort of detailed legislative scrutiny, which is probably what it's best known for. But in the end, there is always the possibility, it happens only very rarely, but there is always the possibility that something could go through with the Commons approving it and the Lords not approving it. That happens, that hasn't happened for a long time, and actually what tends to go on in the Lords is a lot of compromise on the detail of legislation, because one of the key differences between the two houses, and this is one of the things which is threatened with the direction of these peerages, um, is that the government has a majority in the House of Commons. It hasn't for a long time, more than 20 years, had a majority in the House of Lords. So it's a, quite a tough environment. They ask quite difficult questions. Um, they're very good at sort of picking holes in policy, and the government does have to explain itself and why it's chosen particular policies in a very convincing way in an environment where it doesn't have a majority. But these peerages weaken that because they put a lot of Conservatives in, the Conservatives are getting stronger and stronger, <laughs> which means that that scrutiny power is potentially getting eroded. And also the size of the Lords has been controversial for years. This is a big round of appointments. The size of the place have been coming down and this kind of obliterates all of that progress and pushes it up to over 800 again. Is, is there, I know a lot of people, and we're going to speak to one of them in a second, a lot of people are approved because they are experts in a certain field and they need the brains of Britain to be in there. But has there ever been in modern times a move to make them elected rather than just appointed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, House of Lords reform has been, some people say, you know, House of Lords is like, reform is like the weather. It's always with us as a, <laughs> as a controversial topic. Uh, it seems like there's not some, it's not something we can actually do much about. It's, it's, there's never agreement on the correct direction for the House of Lords, but reform is talked about all of the time. Um, so the last time there was a serious attempt at reform was when Nick Clegg was the Deputy Prime Minister under David Cameron's coalition government, that proposed moving towards an elected chamber. But it, it's, it's awkward because when it's appointed, 
people look at it and say, ah, that's not very democratic, and, you know, uh, we're concerned that it ought to have more democratic legitimacy. But then when proposals come forward to introduce elections, a new set of um, complaints arise in response, such as, well, haven't we got enough party politicians already? Um, and if it were elected, then surely it would challenge the legitimacy of the House of Commons and you'd have more clashes between the two chambers. So whichever way you go, elected or appointed, and this is, you know, I'm a sort of a comparative scholar. I look at other countries as well as Britain. You see this all around the world where you have two chamber parliaments. There's always some controversy about the way the second one is made up because it can't be just a carbon copy of the first one. But if it's different to the first one, that raises kind of tensions. And in a way, that's what a second chamber is for. To be a bit of grit in the oyster, yes. to look at things, look look at things again, and say, "Are you really sure that this is the correct policy direction?" Yes. You don't have that grit. There's no point having a second chamber. Interesting. Thank you very much for your time and expertise, Professor Meg Russell, who's the director of University College London's Constitution Unit. I'm